You're listening to Deal Talk with 7MA, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers, and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market. Welcome back to another episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. Today, we're joined by Bass Barian Sims, a Tennessee-based law firm with more than 280 attorneys representing and advising Fortune 500 companies as well as regional and local businesses. Ben Garber, head of Seven Miles Healthcare Practice, will be leading a discussion with three of their healthcare-focused attorneys. Welcome to Frank, Lara, and Angela. Now, before we get started and I kick it over to Ben, I'd like to take a few moments and lay the groundwork by letting each of you introduce yourself. Frank, if you wouldn't mind starting us off, and then Lara and Angela can follow. Thanks, Ariel. This is Frank Pellegrino. I'm a partner in the corporate group at Bassbury and Sims. I uh, work extensively in the healthcare M&A group, doing both buy and sell side deals for both physician-owned practices as well as private equity. Thanks, Ariel. This is Lara Flato. I'm a member at Bassbury and Sims in the healthcare and corporate groups. I focus my practice on all types of transactions in various sectors of the healthcare industry, including the acquisition and disposition of physician practices, which we're excited to be discussing here today, especially mid-COVID. And I am Angela Humphreys. I am chair of the healthcare practice and co-chair of the healthcare private equity team at Bassbury and Sims. I am a healthcare M&A lawyer practicing in physician practice acquisitions, dispositions, and related sectors and work a lot uh, both on the buy and sell side, including with private equity firms and their portfolio companies. Perfect. Thank you, guys. So it's interesting. We actually originally recorded this episode back in February. And before we could even publish it, the world kind of blew up and changed as we know it with the COVID-19 impact. So we're excited to actually re-record this episode and touch base and see kind of how some of the things in the healthcare M&A space have changed. Leading the conversation today, as I mentioned, will be Ben Garber, head of Seven Miles Healthcare Practice. And with that, Ben, I'll pass it over to you, let you give a little bit of your background and kick off today's conversation. Yeah, Earl, thank you so much. And I appreciate the Bassberry Sims team for making some time to uh, revisit our conversation here. I'm Ben Garber, and I lead Seven Mile Advisors Healthcare Investment Banking Practice. We have a large focus on provider-led organizations and physician practice management companies. I have a background coming out of private equity before moving over to corporate development at Optum, where I focused on physician practice acquisitions as well as hospital partnerships and joint ventures. At Seven Mile, again, we focus largely on provider-based organizations and also the, the service providers that support the major themes that we're seeing in healthcare being the shift to outpatient, rapid consolidation both in hospital providers as well as ambulatory and outpatient, and the shift of value and risk among payers. When considering a transaction, and this is whether you've been approached with an unsolicited offer or you're considering going to market, I can't stress enough the importance of being prepared before engaging in any discussions with potential acquirers or investors. A good transaction is a smooth transaction, it's a fast transaction, and preparedness is key to executing on that path. Uh, for our sell side processes, we typically prepare 
our clients who are selling their practice or bringing in outside capital that the process is going to take seven months. So you, you have to be prepared both from an operational standpoint to continue driving performance through your business, volume through your practice, but as well as administratively and from a diligence perspective. One part of preparedness for physician practice that I, I can't highlight enough is in the event that there's a partnership that the intent for a transaction or the desire uh, to bring in outside capital is clear amongst the partners and that the decision makers who will be leading the partnership through this process have been identified, that key points have been walked through internally so that these people are in a position to, to make appropriate decisions on behalf of the partners. Other sticky areas that frequently come up, I, I'd, I'd like to uh, ask the, the Bassberry Sims team to comment here. Frank and, and company, maybe you have some common sticky areas that, that you'd like to highlight to be prepared for. Yeah, no, thanks, Ben. So I think once you sort of settle, if, if you've been solicited for a, an outside capital partner and, and you evaluate the terms, human nature very quickly turns to sort of the dynamics of the group. And inevitably, in my experience with physician practices on the sell side, People are naturally in different stages of their life. Some people are closer to retirement. Some people may be in the right in the middle. Some people have just started. And so inevitably, there is a human nature tendency to have a lot of tension as to who should get more proceeds, who should get less, who may have to roll over. Just the dynamics of the group vis-a-vis -vis where they are in their life stage is, is one of the most common sticky areas I'll often see. Lara, welcome your thoughts as well. Thanks, Frank. I agree completely uh, with both your and Ben's point. Frank, to your point, a lot of times we'll see quote unquote sticky situations where you've, you do have that vast age difference between kind of your newer partners and maybe the physicians that are looking to make an exit and what that means for their post-closing employment for the practice, how long they're expected to stay on versus early on kind of partner physicians who thought they were making kind of a value proposition by being a partner in their current practice and then selling for almost a just an, an employment relationship going forward. So I do think that's that's very important. The other key thing where we have seen some pain points in certain deals is how and when to bring in the associate physicians. And these are physicians that are working towards what they thought was partnership with their current practice. And what does their future like look like post-closing and when is it appropriate for the partners to bring them into the fold and does that mean they get a transaction bonus or, or what kind of deal you're going going to work out for them. And then Ben, to your earlier point, the deals that we see go the smoothest from a physician practice acquisition is, are usually ones where you've got one physician representative who is on the ground talking with his partners and can be the main contact to communicate the values of the practice, what the practice wants with the lawyers and, and also with the banker. I'm glad you brought that up because I think it does highlight an additional value that an advisor can bring to the table in these types of situations, which is helping the team work through these issues internally before ever engaging any outside parties in, in a transaction discussion. Partnerships are, are complex, uh, multifaceted with a lot of different interests involved, and it does help to 
have a, a third party to guide everyone through that process and balance interests as well as equity and non-equity holders. From a transaction valuation standpoint as well, I, I'd additionally like to highlight that if you have a potential buyer at the table who approaches you, whether it's a health system, a private equity firm, or a larger practice group, you may be offered a fair value, but distinctly shown time and again, the value that you'll be able to derive from your practice is higher when you're able to run a competitive process and have more options at the table. And this is reflected not just in the purchase price that people are willing to pay, but also in the terms, which are often as important or more important than the price. And if this is your one chance to monetize a practice that you spent a career building, having options at the table is really taking care of, of your team as, as well as your partners. I'm wondering in today's environment, though, some practices saying temporarily volume go down to zero, others, you know, deemed essential businesses, and then some in between. I'm thinking a lot of the ASCs where the procedures weren't essential at the beginning of COVID, but over time, if they're degenerative, they become essential. Volume's been, been creeping back up. Same with many of the urgent cares and other ambulatory groups that have now mostly rebounded, but, but not quite after seeing dips of you know, volume dropping 80%. For the, the Bassberry team, are, are you seeing much buyer interest in the market today and outreach going to physician practices? Yeah, I mean, I, I am. I think it always comes down to if it's an attractive asset, and I, and I say that in the lens of a private equity buyer, if it was an attractive asset pre-COVID and it, and it remains an attractive asset during COVID, I'm still seeing interest. I think the, the challenge is a little bit more, we can discuss this later, but just the challenges around sort of executing the transaction itself with how do you bridge valuation gaps? How do you take into account the temporary dip in volume? How do you take into account the challenges in the, in the credit and the debt markets? How do you take into account sort of, you know, just uncertainties with respect to COVID? So I think there's still deals that are being done. I know Lara, Angela, and I are all representing sellers in transactions currently, but there are just more factors, more complicating factors on how to execute a strategy in an uncertain time. So Lara, welcome your thoughts. I agree with you completely frank. I think we're still seeing interest. The deals are still there. I would say it's taken a bit longer to bridge some of the gaps that Frank has has identified. And what we're seeing is more negotiation of closing conditions and other conditions to do the deal. And also if you've got a reps and warranty policy, which a lot of these bigger platforms do, what are exclusions to those parties, and then how you allocate the risk relating to COVID, the COVID environment. Angel, I'd be curious, your thoughts, you represent, and you're so well plugged in the healthcare private equity community. So what are you hearing from your private equity clients in terms of M&A during this, during this COVID period? Yeah, so there continues to be private equity interest in the healthcare space, particularly in the physician practice space, continued interest in specialties such as orthopedics, gastroenterology, urology, primary care, ophthalmology, and other sectors, many of which have elective procedures that were suspended or paused, if you will, during COVID-19. While there's interest, the private equity firms 
really want to see the resurgence of volume back to a level that it was pre-COVID. And we are hearing private equity firms saying that they want to see at least 90 days of, of normalized activity, if not longer. And that is resulting in some transactions that otherwise would have been a race to the finish line being worked on, but in a slower, more methodical manner as practices ramp back up and and we see uh, these things play out. It also has resulted in a change in deal terms in many cases, shifting more of the purchase price to rollover equity, shifting purchase price in some cases to a seller note when there would have been third party financing. And then in some cases resulting in an earnout or contingent payment to be paid with hindsight in the rearview mirror around COVID-19. So there continues to be interest. We are actively working on transactions. We actually have had transactions closed that were well down the finish line. But I do think there still is a little bit of a wait and see mentality with respect to private equity generally. I do view that wait and see mentality as being short term, but I think that's that's where we are currently. Angela, thank you for that perspective. It very much mirrors what we've been seeing at Seven Mile Advisors. We've had a distinct uptick in buy side interest from private equity firms who see a buying opportunity in the market today, not necessarily because they're shopping for a COVID discount, but because they think that the value that they can present as a well-capitalized platform with operating infrastructure and administrative support may be more attractive in, in today's environment than it was, say, six months ago. And with that, we are seeing not just strong buying interest, but strong valuations. The valuations have held up. But as you mentioned, terms have shifted to put more of the purchase price on contingent payments to share that rebound risk between the buyer and the seller's practice. I saw this most evidently with the the corporate development folks who are running M&A in these portfolio companies or for large strategics who have to underwrite a forecast that they present to an investment committee. These corporate development professionals were getting pressure from board members and executives to go out and transact, you know, if you're well capitalized and, and you're on the ball field, you know, get out there and go get them. But they also know they have to come back and underwrite a forecast, which is extremely difficult in today's environment. So, you know, one way to, to bridge that is by putting more of the purchase price into tail earnouts that will stretch over years and, and using longer averages rather than point in time multiples. I would um, agree. We are not seeing a decrease in multiples or total possible purchase price, if you will, just rather a a change in the construct of how you potentially get there. And I think, Angela, getting back to our kind of initial discussion of preparedness, I think this whole conversation we're having about the effect that COVID is having on transactions and PE firms wanting to 
essentially purchase these physician practices or practices deciding the administrative burden of kind of operating in the COVID, the COVID market is too difficult. It really lends itself to getting, if you want to engage in a transaction, getting a banker, getting your third party advisors lined up and getting prepared at the outset because these times are really requiring all of us to be creative and nimble and work towards a solution or a deal that's doable and and digestible for for both parties. And so where we would normally suggest that you get your advisors engaged really early, it's incredibly important in the current environment to do so. And I don't think speaking as someone coming from the buy side for the, the past decade, the importance of engaging transaction attorneys who are real, actual transaction attorneys who do M&A every day, who understand healthcare, understand coding, understand the payer uh, environments, understand the, the compensation structures. They're getting increasingly complex for the, the physician partners on the back end of these, because as we're hearing, the terms of these transactions are becoming more complex. There's more negotiating points, and where that becomes most apparent is in the final push to close in that last 45 to 60 days when you've gone into exclusivity and you're heavily invested in the process. That's when this comes to a head and a a deal can really fall apart. And that's where I've seen attorneys who may have claimed to be transaction attorneys becomes evident that they are not. So I cannot stress enough that you should pay up to hire the right attorneys. Do not get a general practitioner who uh, you know has, has done a deal or two. It, it will it'll save you money in the long run. And again, a smooth transaction is a quick transaction. And yeah. a qualified counsel will get you there. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, shameless plug. Thank you, Ben. Although I, I will say, as Angela likes to tell me all the time, we're, we at Baxter and Sims strive to be an excellent value proposition. But nonetheless, I would say that Ben and his team, when I'm pitching for business, the, the objective of the investment bank is, is obviously to get the, the highest or the, the highest price that, that's executable. And for the attorneys, it's to help you keep that money. And Ben was spot on in terms of the terms and conditions of a purchase agreement are oftentimes ways that money can come out of the physician's pocket. And so you obviously want to have someone who's keyed in on that and will advocate on your behalf to keep all that money in your pocket because you want a high valuation, you want a high multiple. Those are all great things, but you also on the back end want to keep all that and at a income tax rate that is most, if not all, at at capital gains. So it it really is sort of the flip side of the same coin there. Well, and and Frank, not to frame it as a David and Goliath because there are some very large, sophisticated, professional physician practices, but I mean, generally, they're, they're not engaged in M&A transactions every day, whereas the people who are approaching you are. No, you're, you're right. I mean, I think a lot of times when you, it advocates for professionals like Ben and the folks at Bassberry, you do this all day, every day, to interact with the private equity and strategic business development partners at, at large serial acquirers. Oftentimes, there'll be, there'll be sticky issues, whether it be valuation or non-competes or terms of rollover or employment agreements. And frankly, you as a, as a seller, it's in your best interest to have someone advocate on your behalf. So you're not having those, 
quite frankly, awkward conversations with people who are, you know, when the deal closes, is going to be your employer and to have someone who advocates on your behalf and you don't have to have sort of awkward conversations that you'd rather not. I've, I've oftentimes seen where deals fall apart because, you know, shareholders have come so far, particularly in the, in the stage of the process we're talking about now. You've done QOV, you've done SIMS, you've done management meetings. I mean, it, it's been maybe two or three or four or five, six months. And here we are sort of haggling at the, the last point and deal fatigue is, is something I often see come up and, you know, shareholders are just sort of tired and we're ready for the process to be over. And a lot of times decisions in hindsight, you, you wish you would have made differently can come out of deal fatigue. And, and that's where professionals like Ben and, and folks at Bassberry can help, help sort of navigate some of those issues. Now that we're, we're really digging in here, could you provide some insight as far as terms and considerations that, that you might see differ between private equity investors uh, who may look at your business either as a standalone ongoing operating entity, what we call platform investment, or strategic investors, whether that is a large publicly traded company, the health system in your region, or the portfolio company of a private equity firm. Are the transaction structures and and the terms that, that you see generally consistent amongst all buyer groups, how do those differ? So basically, on the private equity position practice management structure, a lot of times, or most times now, those are are structured around the prohibition on the corporate practice of medicine. So that would mean that you can't have non-physician owners of a physician practice. And so essentially, you would have the practice as it remains today keep its physician owners and its clinical assets, so its payer agreements and a provider numbers, and all of the clinical providers would be employed by that entity. And it would enter into a management company with enter into a management agreement with a management company that would then be owned partially by the private equity group. And that's the entity that that the physicians would hold rollover equity in as part of the transaction. And so essentially that gets the private equity company as, as close to the line of little c control of the practice as it can. But all of the clinical control would be under the control of the, the physician practice. Now with a, Angela, you and I work on several of these deals. But what's critically important, especially on a platform deal, is that the physicians, while they retain control over the clinical practice, you also want them to retain or negotiate for them some control over the governance and and perhaps get them additional control or oversight or certain veto rights with respect to administrative matters. Maybe the pay of administrative employees or the pay of certain mid-level providers. So really, that's kind of your private equity structure in a nutshell. If it's going to be more of a strategic buyer, then, and it's another physician practice wanting to acquire another physician practice, and you've got all physicians, then you're less inhibited by the corporate practice restrictions. Angela, do you have, did I miss, miss any big points there? No, Larry, I would agree with your comments on that front. Ben, the only thing I would add, and it's, uh, I know we're reaching the end of our time, so I wanted to be sensitive, but one other thing I, that might be on top of mind for folks is how they're dealing with the, um, if, if they've received the PPP loan. And Angela, you wanted to spend a, a couple of minutes just talking about how we're seeing private equity view recipients of PPP loans. I know that's probably top of mind with a lot of position practices out there. Sure. So private equity is diligencing all 
PPP loan funding and CARES Act funding that has been received by practices very heavily, spending a lot of time in that area. We have seen private equity firms review whether or not the practice, in their opinion, had a true need for PPP funding, and in some cases required a repayment of that funding prior to entering into a transaction for large-scale physician enterprises, even though they're not private equity owned, how they're interrelated in terms of affiliation and counting the number of employees of the entire enterprise has been diligenced very heavily. In most cases, the private equity firms are taking zero risk as it relates to any of that funding, and in particular, the possibility of a required repayment of that funding down the road. So we are seeing no credit for any funding being given in terms of networking capital and other purchase price adjustments. We're seeing it be treated truly as a debt or debt-like item. And then we also are seeing specific indemnities required on the part of the private equity firms, which may be in the form of an escrow equal to the amount of funds received or a holdback from the purchase price, or in some cases, just a direct specific indemnity from the owners. But private equity firms are spending a lot of time on the front end trying to understand these funds and trying to make sure you know that they're comfortable with the risk profile that the practice has with respect to those funds. As one example, any PPP loan in excess of $2 million is going to be subject to automatic audit, which has been announced by the government. And so we have seen a number of transactions where although the physician practice doesn't seem that large at at first blush, they have had loans well in excess of $2 million. And those are all being focused on very heavily by private equity, particularly the possibility of a potential repayment coming out of an audit that will be eventual, not possible, but eventual. And Angela, to piggyback on your point, because there have been a lot of a lot of changes with the PPP loan as, as people have started to get their bearings. But this was an issue I thought that I think everybody thought was going to be I hesitate to say somewhat short-lived, but you had eight weeks from your initial loan date to use the money. And so I know for a couple of our deals at the beginning, that eight-week period did have an effect on the timing of some of our transactions. But when the the final rules got implemented, you could choose either an eight-week or a 24-week period. So it's not like the issue is going away anytime soon. There could be um, practices that go to market where they have elected this 24-week period and the private equity companies. Well, we're going to still be dealing with these issues, I think, well into September. I'm glad you brought up those nuances because they're, they're certainly top of mind. And, and I know several large provider groups who, you know, in addition to the PPP money, they were dealing with CMS advance payments that were received really with no notice. And at Seven Mile, we've seen a whole gamut of 
settle these outstanding items, ranging from the sellers preemptively paying everything back out of precaution to some pretty creative deal terms to handle that that tail from the purchasers and and everything in between. And I I think it's still a live area where people are figuring this out as it goes. It's it's a, a bit of uncharted territory. I can't imagine a better team to help you navigate that than who I'm speaking with today. Before we wrap up, are there any final thoughts that you may have, either physician, operators, or owners, more active or being approached, you know, are considering how they should think about a transaction in today's environment? Yeah, I think this today's environment only exacerbates the need for, I just sort of view it as an ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure. So whether you're investment advisors or legal providers, I think it's just more critical now more than ever to have someone sort of in your corner to help think through all of these things. Because each one of these topics we addressed today, we could have spent an hour talking about. So, I mean, again, I think it just the current COVID environment really accentuates the need to, to have qualified professionals, service providers advocating for you on your behalf. I agree. The physicians kind of need to have what their goals are with respect to a transaction, but but even more so these days, physicians really need to get their house in order to the extent it's not, even if you were ready to go to market before COVID hit, it's really important. And, and what we as lawyers on the buy side of the deal and private equity firms are diligencing are going to be the same with an added plus for all of the things that the physician group has has done to weather the COVID storm, whether that's how you have treated your employees and furloughs, whether you have taken out a PPP loan, what changes have you made to your practices, policies and procedures, all of those types of things. And so to the extent that you're thinking of, of going to market, it probably makes sense if you haven't already to, as Frank suggested, engage professionals that can help you kind of get your house in order so that when somebody comes in to diligence, you have answers to the questions. And not only do you have answers, but you have good answers to the question. That's a great point. The last item I think I would add from the seven mile side here is, is that we see robust demand and that the buyers who are well capitalized and comfortable deploying, and in many cases still under mandate, to deploy capital are aggressive in their outreach. So do not be surprised if, if you continue to get inbound inquiries. Good deals, good valuations with good terms are absolutely still on the table, but there's a number of issues that have to be worked through in order to get there. And I get asked all the time, what should I do in, in this situation? And at the end of the day, keep your head down, keep your nose to the grindstone and if the decisions you're making are good fundamentals that support the core operations of the business, and it's the right decision for the business regardless of a transaction approaching, that's where you should keep your, your attention. And there will always be buyer appetite for well-run practices with attractive panels, good payer relationships, and high talent uh, physicians and clinicians. Bassberry and Sims team, thank you so much. I really always enjoy our time together. I learn a lot every time and appreciate your insights. Thank you so much for joining us on Deal Talk with 7 and 8. Oh, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Ben. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number 7, M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. 7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business. 